Today we continue uh, the verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans called Royal Invitation. If you will, look at your outline. We'll start there this morning. If you look at the introduction, Paul in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is building the case that all are guilty and without excuse before a holy God. In this passage, the passage we're looking at today, he is warning those who have a false religious sense of salvation and hope of heaven. Now, let me just say this. He is definitely addressing what we would call the religious. Now, now let me say this. Here's a definition. If you look on your outline, definition of religion. A person's best and failed attempt to be acceptable by God. That's one of the best definitions I've ever seen because it pretty much sums up everything that religion comes up short with and what it seems to offer. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2. As you're turning there, listen to these words. Religion is works-based and grace-deficient. Religion bypasses the sacrifice of Jesus. Religion is very burdensome. Religion is very deceptive. And distorts perspective. Religion has proven to be the most destructive tool of the enemy. And you know something? It all started way back when in Genesis. When Cain became one of those who chose not to come to God on God's terms. And the terms that were set for him. But he chose to do an end around basically. And he basically came and brought the works of his hands which was what we would say would probably be the first false religion. And it's continued into the 21st century in which we live. Look on your outline again. There's three categories of those who are guilty, and we've already looked at the first two. But if you'll remember in in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, it is there that Paul is dealing with the rebellious. The rebellious. These are people who rebel against God outwardly. They reject God. They repress the truth. They reject the truth. They replace the truth with their own rationalizations. Intellectually, they rebel against God to do their own thing. Eventually, you know what the Bible says about this group? Eventually, God will give them over to their sin and perversions, to their, de- their deceptions, and to the consequences of their sin. And so we see that's the first group that Paul dealt with. We saw that two weeks ago. And then last week, we looked at the second category of those who are guilty, and that's the respectable. The respectable. You come into chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, and you find this group there. Paul basically says, these are those who say, I'm a decent person. I'm a law-abiding person. I'm no pervert. I'm better than those so-and-sos in chapter 1. They feel superior when judging themselves against others. They are quick to judge people whose sins are more open and obvious. They are considered self-righteous, not realizing the need for a Savior in their own life because of their own pride. That's the second group he addresses. Today, if he didn't get you in the first two categories, he's possibly going to get you today. And the third category are the religious Those who are the religious. He's going to deal with them in the passage today. And of course, the title of this message is The Guilt of the Religious. Now, often the rebellious person eventually many times gets to the end of the rope when their life is falling apart and everything is going wrong. Many times they will are quick to admit their need for help. 
And many times those who are living the rebellious life, they're the ones who many times quickly turn to Christ. And sometimes we've seen that. Some of you are living testimonies that that's the case. There was a time in your life where you were rebellious against God. You didn't want to go his way, but there was a wake-up call. There was something that happened in your life that, that turned you, and you came to him. This second group, they're a little more difficult to reach. The respectable group that we talked about just a moment ago, they are the people who will say, I'm a good moral person, so I don't need Christ. I'm, as, it, as I said earlier, I'm better than so-and-so. But by far, the religious person is the hardest person to reach with the gospel. They are trying to work their way to heaven. They are trusting in their own religion and works to get them there. They are by far the toughest to reach. In the passage today, Paul deals specifically with the Jewish religion. And the reason he did that is mainly because he was a Jew, and, and, and that was much of his opposition that he's writing against. I mean, he's come up against Jew after Jew who, who comes against his writings, even those who have come to Christ. There's, there's a certain group of them who really want to build Christianity in the context of religion, and he's dealing with them. Now, think about this. The principles that we see here today will apply to anyone who says that religion can save them. In the passage today, listen to this. You can substitute the word church member everywhere it reads Jews, and it would apply. The purpose of this section is to show that religion without the response to the provision of Christ will not get you to heaven. It won't save you. It will not make you right with God. It will not make you acceptable to God. Paul in this passage will expose the failures and deceptions of religion and the religious. He's going to expose it in this passage today. So look there on your outline. Seven characteristics of the religious. This is pretty much them. If you want to summarize who they are, this is them. They, first of all, look on your outline, depend on a label. They're big on labels. In Romans chapter 2, look at verse 17. It says, indeed, you are called a Jew. Now, for the Jew who believed there was a heaven, they thought that their name was an instant passport to heaven. Regardless of what they did, what they thought, since I am a Jew, I'm going to make it. If you were to go to the first century and you were to ask a Jew, are you right with God? They would say, of course I am. I'm a Jew. Today, this misaligned reasoning continues. Just ask someone, are you a Christian? And many people will immediately answer, of course. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm an Assembly of God. I'm a Methodist. I'm one of the good ones. I'm a Baptist. Or my parents were Christians, and therefore I guess I'm a Christian. Or I go to such and such church. You see, we all are making the same mistake 2,000 years later that they made the mistake in the first century. Isn't it amazing? I was talking to someone yesterday. Isn't it amazing how nothing's really changed? The same things that were wrong in the first century are wrong in the 21st century. Now, none of these reasons make you acceptable to God. It's not the church membership, it's, nor is it a label, or nor is it a family history that makes you a believer. Look at what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3. He says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ has put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, if you are all one in Christ. Now, you know what that verse implies? 
It, it implies on both sides of salvation that we're all on equal footing. There is no difference. Before we came to Christ, there was no difference. You either knew him or you didn't. On the other side of Christ, guess what? There's no difference. We either know him or we don't know him. And labels, Paul was saying, labels don't matter. They don't matter to God. Next, the religious rely on rules and regulations. Look at Romans chapter 2 again. Look at verse 17. He says, indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law. Now, the fact is, the law... If you don't know this, has never saved anyone. Galatians teaches that the law's purpose has never been to save anyone because no one apart from Christ could keep it perfectly. Keeping the law was and is, listen to me, a failed pursuit. Paul came to the end of himself in that whole pursuit. And basically, he came on the other side, and he, we're going to read this in the coming weeks, where he says, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seek good. He, for all had sinned, come short of the glory of God. Did you know that he was on the path of religion at one time in his life? He believed there, that his righteous pursuit could make him acceptable before God. And guess what? He found out it, it, it didn't. And now he's telling us. He's basically saying to Jews, you, you attempt to be acceptable before God by keeping these rules and regulations. But listen to what James 2 says. You want to see something defeating? Listen to this. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, guess what? Guilty of all. Here's what that means. Everyone who's ever sinned is in the category, listen, of guilty. Everyone who's ever sinned. From, from the worst of sinners to the least of sinners. All stand before a holy God, guilty before God. Now, some of you aren't going to like this, but how many of you know little two-year-olds are sinners? You know that, right? We, we've said that, right? Took one of them to a movie yesterday. Yeah, they're sinners, I'm telling you. <laughs> I love that kid. But anyway, and, and, and let me just say this. We're all there. The sins that you see committed on television, the movies, and whatever you're seeing out there, they're just as guilty as we are. But here's the difference. If you've made provision for your salvation in and through Jesus Christ, guess what? It's not your righteousness that's going to be judged. It's His perfect righteousness that will stand in the place of judgment for you. And that's the good news. The problem is we're too busy many times as religious people and we like to go doing the judging and we're saying, well, we're a part of this label. We keep this rule. We keep this regulation. Surely we're acceptable for God. Apart from Christ, you are not acceptable before God based on the authority of Scripture. And that's what, exactly what Paul's trying to tell us today, that we're guilty. The Jews felt that simply because they had the law given to them, that made them acceptable to God. They were accepted by God whether they believed it or not. Matter of fact, Jesus told the most religious people of the first century, they were the Pharisees. Listen to what he says in John chapter 5. Look here. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. He's basically saying you open up the scriptures, you study the scriptures. And by the way, many of the Pharisees, as I've told many times, they had actually memorized. Check this out. Many of them had memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. They knew it inside and out. And then all of a sudden, the promised one who became the fulfillment of the law shows up, didn't even recognize them. You know why? Because they were bound up in religion. 
And because of them being bound up in religion, they, they were deceived. They were deceived. And Jesus is calling them on it. Keeping rules and regulations, as I said, never saved anyone. Listen, the law was given to show you cannot be saved by it. Salvation does not come by the works of the law. Salvation does not come by keeping the regulations of the law. Paul told the Colossians, but trying to do this would lead to deception. Look at what he says here on the screen. He says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, whilst though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which will perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom, listen, here it is, in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. Here's what he's saying. He's saying your problem is deeper than you think. Your problem in the fact that you can't keep the law is not just a matter of you trying to achieve moral perfection to keep the regulations and the rules and all that. There's something wrong with you. Listen, you're not going to like this, but it's true. There's something wrong with you at the core of who you are. And it's your flesh. And that's what makes you guilty before God. And guess what? You know what he's basically saying? And you'll never be able to defeat it in and of yourself. Now, why would Paul say that? Because he was one who tried with everything he had to do that. And you know what? He came out on the other side saying, I failed. I was guilty. He was religious, and yet he was guilty. Christ, listen, Christ is enough. You cannot make yourself acceptable to God by keeping regulations. You cannot conquer your flesh by keeping regulations. Today, listen, some have put communion and baptism in this regulation category. Now, let me say this about both of those. Both are observances and obedience, but not a means to salvation. It is something that follows salvation. It is something by which we are commanded to take communion. We are commanded to be baptized. Those things are there. It happens, but it is not the means to salvation. It is the demonstration of the salvation that has taken place in us. Only Christ, listen, can make you acceptable. In Galatians chapter 2, look at what Paul writes also. He says, knowing this, that a man is not justified by the works of the law. You know what justified means? It means in, in the sense of not, when it's positive, positively present, justified literally means accepted by God. Okay? But when it says not, it means you're not acceptable by God, not accepted by God. And so basically, here's what it says. Knowing that a man is not accepted by God by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified, that we can be acceptable, acceptable to God. By faith, how does it come? In Christ, not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, listen, no flesh shall be justified. No flesh will be acceptable to God because we can't get there in the flesh. It doesn't happen. Never has happened for a soul apart from Jesus Christ himself who became the perfect sacrifice. Next, the religious claim to have special status with God. In Romans chapter 2, look at verse 17 again. How many of you are concerned that we're still in the first verse? Anybody? It'll come faster, okay? Verse 17, indeed you are called a Jew 
and rest on the law and make your boast in God. Now, a modern paraphrase of verse 17 is this. You call yourself a Jew, you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God. Now, let me just tell you this. If we read that at face value, it would look like Paul is, is affirming them and endorsing them in this behavior. But you know what he's doing through this whole section? He's using sarcasm. Sarcasm. Listen, sometimes, listen, the most prideful people are religious people. The Jews felt that they had an inside track to God. They felt that because they were the chosen people, they had special status. Now, here's what you need to know. They were chosen. But being chosen by God was not so they could look down on others. That was not what they were chosen for. To, for God to lift them up where they can look down on others. No. You know why they were chosen for? To make God known to the nations. To make him known that the nations would be blessed by the, by the descendants of Abraham. That was the whole purpose. That they would go and serve the nations. And they would make God known. That God desires a relationship with them. How did they do? They didn't take it that way. They went around saying, well look at us. Boy, we're Jews. We have labels. We keep rules. We keep regulations. And by the way, we have a special status with God because we're considered chosen. They totally, totally misrepresented what God was trying to do through them. Totally. Paul, before his encounter with Jesus, believed he had special status. He tells us he thought he had that. Look here on the screen. He says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. Let me tell you what he's talking about based on this context. That he had confidence in his labels. That he had confidence in his attempts to keep the law. That he had confidence in his heritage. That's what he's meaning by this. He's saying, I had all that. He said, though I might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. He's basically saying, I wore those concepts out. I wore those thoughts out. I did everything I knew to do. He goes on. He tells you about his labels. He tells you about his heritage. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless, at least in his own mind. But what things were gained to me, those labels, those rules, those regulations, that's the thing where I thought I had special status with God. Listen, I count all those things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered a loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Those things mean nothing to me anymore. Listen, when you truly encounter Christ like Paul did, and he reveals himself in such a way. Let, let me tell you about your labels. They mean nothing to you anymore. The only thing you know is you're lost. And you're in need of salvation. And, and, and you start seeing yourself in that way. And so we see what Paul's trying to... Listen, when Paul met Christ, listen, he realized his religious labels, his attempt to keep rules and regulations, and his supposed status with God did not in any way make him acceptable to God. That's what he's telling us. Look at Galatians chapter 2. But those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. Because God shows personal favoritism to no man, to no group of people, to, to, no, to no nation. We need to be careful with our labels and what we think is our special status. 
It's amazing how Americans travel throughout the world. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I've talked to a lot of people from other countries. And once you get to know them, walls start coming down. And they tell you how they really feel. And I'm going to be honest with you. Americans aren't perceived in the rest of the world like we think we are. If you get out there and you really start talking to the people in these other countries, it's almost like some of them, if they'll really be honest with you, once you get past all the pretense, you get down to the nitty-gritty, they'll tell you that y'all think y'all are somebody. And y'all, we, we really do at times, don't we? Listen, just because you're American doesn't mean you're a Christian. Doesn't mean you have special status with God. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. God's blessed this place like you wouldn't believe. There's, I don't know there's ever been a nation blessed like America's been blessed. But, but I'm here to tell you, I, I don't know how much more of it we're going to get, but, 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 it, but, but we have. But being an American does not make you Christian, does not make you acceptable to God. Listen, being Baptist is special in my heart. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, listen, it, it doesn't mean anything. God doesn't get, he doesn't, he's not impressed with labels. Being a member of Putnam Baptist Church, as great as this church is, doesn't impress God necessarily. When it comes to you as an individual, it's what have you done with Jesus? No country, denomination, or church has the market on God. <laughs> Next, a religious set a high moral standard. In Romans chapter 2, look at verse 18, it says, and, and you know His will and approve the things that are excellent, be instructed out of the law. Now, this verse, because of its context, listen, is not, as I said before, this is not affirmation, it's sarcasm. The religious of the first century, listen, honestly believed just because they knew God's will and believed it was special, it was, it was not enough to please him. He is saying it's not enough to know God's will. You've got to do it. They held others. Listen, the religious of the first century, and it happens today, they held others to a high moral standard in their teaching and expectation and pretended that they themselves were living up to that high moral standard which no one could or were. Look at Galatians chapter 6 here on the screen. For not even those who are circumcised kept, keep the law. Circumcision is that whole idea of identifying with Christ through, or identifying with God through faith. But even them, they couldn't keep the law. But they desired to have you circumcised that you may boast in your flesh. It's all about the label. It's all about the regulation. It's all about the law. It's all about that. But God forbid that I should boast, except how are we going to boast? We're going to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me. Paul's saying the world's become dead to me. Those old ways of looking at my life through the religious lens I was looking through, through the labels, through all the special status I thought I had and all that, they're dead to me. And I to the world, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision circumcision avails anything but the only thing that matters listen is being a new creation and that implies transformation and that can only come by way of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ listen we ought to maintain a high moral standard, a strong code of ethics. We ought to go for the best in life and have a high standard of integrity. But listen, moral integrity and a high moral standard is not the path to heaven. You do know that, right? Salvation, listen, is not moral perfection. It's impossible. Yet the religious would have you believe they live moral perfection. Paul is systematically tearing down every prop 
that religious people think will get them a passport into heaven. They thought, I'm not like the immoral or pervert in chapter 1. I am better than the moral person in chapter 2 who does not know God, but I live a clean life. I am a religious person. I do works. All of these privileges were things the Jews took pride in and believed would make them acceptable to God. But you know what Paul's ending thoughts on all this is going to be? All are still guilty before God, including this category, the religious how about this? Look on your outline. The religious have condescending attitude, have a condescending attitude toward others. Romans chapter 2, look at verse 19. It says, And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes. And here it is. Having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Now, Paul was saying that they are saying, We are teachers, we are the gods, we are the way. Everyone else is blind, foolish, they are in the dark, everything, everyone else is just stupid. Listen to me, world, I've got the answer for everything. That was the mentality the Jew had in the first century. That's the mentality, I believe, of the religious even in the 21st century. Listen, have you ever known someone who was a religious snob? You ever met them? Uh, how about a religious know-it-all? Those who want you to think they have it all together and you don't. Now think of this. Have you ever thought to yourself, why do I feel everyone is looking down on me? You ever gone to church and felt that before? Have you ever gone? Have you, why is it that everyone seems to have it all together and I don't? You ever had these thoughts? I've had these thoughts. I've had these thoughts most of my life. I'll be honest with you. And it's interesting that none of us have it all together. We don't. The only thing we've got is Jesus. The only thing we have is the provision that he's made on our behalf. And I'm here to tell you, listen, the people in church who claim to have it all together, let me just tell you, I know most of y'all, they don't. They don't have it all together. Facebook. You ever been on Facebook? I, I've, never, I've never had an account on Facebook. But I talk to people who have accounts on Facebook. And, and I've never seen more discouragement than someone who's on Facebook who, gets, who, who all of a sudden walks away from Facebook. And they're more discouraged than they've ever been. You know what, you know what we do? You know what people do? They want you to think that their world is second to none. It is the best it can be. Man, it is just great. It is just wonderful. We're on vacation. Everybody's loving on each other. Really? Have you ever been on vacation with a family? Who do you think you're fooling? Always talking about how great their husband is, how great their wife is. There's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. But you know what I found out? The most people, the more people kind of who want to say all those things and put it all together are trying to reassure, reassure themselves that they're okay in their marriage. I'm just going to be honest with you. That little Bobby, that son, my little Bobby, he's so wonderful. He's so smart. Are we even looking at the same kid? I mean, it's amazing how everybody just wants to present the idea that everything is great. We're doing great. The marriage is great. The kids are wonderful. We know you're lying. 
If your faith makes you feel superior to others, then you are devoted to a religion and not true faith. True faith will not make you feel superior. Can I tell you why? Here's why. Because every time I personally have ever had a true encounter with God, every time I've heard where some of you have had these true encounters with God, we don't leave those moments walking around boastful and arrogant saying, let me just tell you how good God is and how great he thinks I am. It doesn't happen that way. When we truly encounter him as he truly is, you know what happens? The light comes into all the deceptive corners of my life. And I begin to see myself truly who I am, as truly who I am. And guess what? It, it never measures up to who God is. And, and you know something? It, it, I don't leave those moments looking around at everybody else thinking, boy, I'm so glad I got it together and they don't. <laughs> I, I feel the lowest of any of them. Billy Graham says, evangelism, have you, you've heard this, is just one beggar telling another beggar where they can find bread. I'm not any better than anyone else. When we go to share the gospel, it's not because we're more superior or more perfect. Our sin, listen, just as their sin caused the need for salvation. Listen, our sin, just as their sin, caused the need for Jesus' sacrifice. You see, the religious person would have you believe it was their sin that caused Jesus to go through what he went through. The true person who has a true faith in God knows it was their sin that, that nailed him to a tree. Therefore, we can't look down on anyone. How about this? The religious tends to be hypocritical. Uh, let me tell you something about the whole idea of, 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 the whole idea of, of, of uh, hypocrisy. Let me tell you the whole idea of it. You know what I used to think it meant? And, and it does mean this, but it comes far short to what Jesus was addressing. I used to think it meant that you're just being something that you're really not. Or telling people what, you, what you'd like, but you're really not that person. You're being a hypocrite. But do you know what the, the most terrible part about hypocrisy is? Listen, listen carefully. Is when you misrepresent who Jesus is. That's the worst part of it. I mean, Jesus, if you look at Matthew chapter 23, he's going after the religious of the first century. I mean, he's going after them. And almost after every step or before every statement, he says, woe to you. Remember those statements? And then at the end, he's, he just he gets, so, gets so frustrated almost. He says, hypocrite. Woe to you. And then he gets all into what they're doing, hypocrite. You know why he was so frustrated with that? Because it misrepresented who his father was. Those people misrepresented who God was. And any time God's glory was threatened, guess what happened to Jesus? He let it be known and he didn't come across as some pansy. He went after him. And that's the whole reason he went after him is because they misrepresented who God is. And so what happens in Romans chapter 2, look at verse 21. He says, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You, he basically said, are you not listening to your own preaching? You who preach to the man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. As it is written, 
He's basically saying you're misrepresenting God so badly that the people that God would like to reach through your life, they won't hear anything of it. You ever heard someone, you ever talked to somebody about going to church or coming and being part of the body? I don't want to go down there. What do they say? Bunch of hypocrites. Now, let me just say this. In some cases, that's not necessarily the truth. You do know that. Sometimes it's just they, they just don't want, they don't want to go and center the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, His teaching and that kind of thing. There's some of that there. But you know something? A lot of times they're right. And it causes us. It says that here. Paul was saying, listen, your walk does not match your talk. Your conduct does not match your claims. Your behavior does not match your belief. You say one thing, but you do something else. Isaiah says this. Let's look at the screen. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. The religious go to worship. They sing the songs of praise. They may even give their tithes. They listen to the sermon, and yet they walk out, listen, with no intention of applying the truths they hear. But it does not stop there. They claim they are Christians doing Christian things, pretending to have a testimony of knowing God. Yet the world sees through their hypocrisy. And because of this, they give God a bad name. Gandhi. Remember him? Gandhi actually studied the claims of Christ. And it was said he was very close to becoming a Christian. But his rejection of Christ became permanent when he came to America where he saw much hypocrisy in those who claimed they were Christians. He later stated that he rejected Christianity not because of Christ, but because of Christians. This type of rejection still happens today. People today say the church is full of hypocrites. They don't want no part of, uh, of it nor its message. How does this happen? Here's how it happens. When people live out, out of the tenets of religion and do not accurately portray the desired relationship God wants to have with his creation through Jesus Christ. That's when it happens. The point of verse 24 is religion sends many people to hell. The true message of the gospel often gets confused in the trappings of religion and people are turned off so they miss Christ completely. Next, the religious. They rely on rituals. Romans chapter 2 verse 25 for circumcision. Of course, that's a physical mark of, of one's faith. It's an outward symbol is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? He's trying to use logic in what he's presenting here. And will not the physical uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? He's getting to it here. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But if he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, who pray, whose praise is not from men but from God. Here's what you need to understand. The outward part needs to match what's on the inward part. And that's what he's saying. If there's something inward that's not right, the outward's not going to be right. He's making the point here. He's talking about the difference between an outward practice and an inward attitude. Think of this. Originally, circumcision was meant to be an expression of faith. 
or demonstration of faith. It symbolized, it symbolized commitment to God and faith in God. It was like the wedding ring of Judaism. It was like baptism to the Christian. Rituals, listen, are useless practices and symbols if there is no heart commitment behind them. A religious person tends to rely on rituals that he can point to to identify himself with something he may not necessarily be committed to. And here's what it means. Ritual without reality is worthless. But yet, that's many times what the religious trust in. Again, as I said earlier, today some have put communion and baptism in this regulation category or ritual category. As I said, both are observances and obedience, but not a means of salvation. Only Christ can make you acceptable to God. Galatians chapter 5. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. That, that's really nothing, I mean, in and of itself. He's talking about ritual. He's talking about regulation. They, they mean nothing in and of itself. But faith working through what? Love. It's when there's action, when there's a true move of the heart. Bottom line, Jesus has nothing to do with religion except that he was and is against it. Jesus never taught that religion would get people to heaven. As a matter of fact, when you study the scriptures, you find that God often bypasses a religious establishment to get his message across. Think of this. When God wanted to announce Jesus' birth, he didn't go to the religious, did he? He went to the outcasts, the lowly. He bypassed the high priests, the rabbis, the teachers, the denominational groups, and went out to the shepherds who were considered outcasts of society. When God wanted to get his message out, it says, the word of God came to John the Baptist. Who was John the Baptist? He was a nobody who was not a part of the religious establishment. God often bypasses the religious because of their pride, their hypocrisy, and their deceptive opinion of themselves. All seem to be the natural byproduct of religion. Think of this. People use religion as a shortcut or something they believe that needs to be possibly in their child's life. Something that is neatly tucked away in some compartment of their life. It's no different than uh, wanting their child to be a part of a, a church. It's no different than you want them to be a part of a sports team. Or you want them to be a part of a special dance troupe. Or you want them to do this. Or you want them to do that. A lot of parents don't treat it any differently. But let me tell you this. That is treating something very seriously as just nothing more than religion. And it gets you nowhere. And you know what's amazing? Our children, they pick up on it. They see when it's real and when it's not real. And you know what? The demonstration many times is how does it play out later? Not all the time, but sometimes it is. And the thing that we need to be aware of is what are we demonstrating before our children? Listen, here's the application. Religion is not the solution to our guilt. It only makes things burdensome and more deceptive. The solution is found in the provision of salvation through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, result, resulting in our transformation, which we haven't even got to that. But something that's being transformed. How is something transformed? Look on the back of your outline. I've given you, I try to give you this about every quarter because I think it's so important. Here's the transformative work of salvation from religion to relationship. You see, all of us have this whole idea. This is how it happens. There's an awareness of a supreme being. 
There's the initial awareness of the gospel. There's the awareness of the fundamentals of the gospel. There's a grasp of the implications of the gospel. There's a positive attitude towards the gospel. It's basically us saying, boy, that's a great invitation. That's something great there. There's a personal problem recognition. When we come and encounter the gospel, we begin to interact with it. It becomes convicting. We begin to see ourselves as a sinner. And then there's a belief that must come next. And then, only then, is there a decision to act where there's confession and repentance, there's faith in Jesus Christ, there's a profession through baptism, there's lordship. That, all this is the bringing about of this thing we call salvation. There's the new creation, there's the Holy Spirit indwelling, there's changes that occur, there's behaviors, there's attitudes, there's perspective changes. Realizing the importance of the, the word of God in prayer, the role of the church, sharing your story, serving all of a sudden, everything changes in your life. But let me tell you this. It's religion all the way down to possibly even belief. They're always, listen, for it to go from just religious talk to something that is transformative, to something that changes your life, to something that's a relationship with the God of Creator who, who's trusting in the provision of Jesus, it must move to a decision to act. And I'm afraid that many people sitting in the churches across America today today, have never got to the decision to act. And here's what I'm going to be bold to say this morning. They're not living out a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They're living in the confines of religion. Religion. It's got to be more. It's got to be more. Would you stand to your feet? Father, we just come to you right now. and Lord, we realize that so many times we just miss it. I know there's been times in my life where I've missed it. But, Father, I thank you that I didn't miss the opportunity to, to trust Jesus, to turn from my sin, to place my faith in him. And even though I stand here today, not a perfect person, but a person who strives and longs to be what God desires me to do, even though there's times I fail so miserably, Father, I thank you that your Holy Spirit is there working in and through me to, to teach me uh, the ways of the Spirit, Father. To teach me to, to, to understand more fully why I'm even accepted by God. Not because of my own righteousness. Not because I keep a law. Not because of a label. But because of the provision of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for that. Lord, if there's someone here today that's never received you as their Lord and Savior, they've never come on the terms that you've set forth through repentance and belief and a faith in you, I pray today will be the day to give their life to you. Father, I pray for the person sitting in this room who, who, who honestly, through this evaluation that we've seen through your word today, they're going to leave here and, and deep down they know that they're nothing more than religious. They haven't crossed over into that personal relationship of knowing you. Father, I pray that they won't leave here in that condition. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for that provision. Lord, I pray that your spirit will work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.